0: Thank you for choosing to listen to Why I Stay. After this episode, be sure to check out our latest podcast series, Answers, a show where Patheos tackles common questions about the world's different religions, such as what makes something kosher, why is there a hell, and what are the names of God? You can find our entire catalog of podcasts, including answers, at patheos.com or on your favorite podcast app. And now, without further ado... Here's why I stay.
1: For those of us who end up saying, okay, I'm invested enough that I kind of want to stick around and at least own this baggage. How do we be part of renewal? How do we be part of leaving it better than we found it? To use a metaphor from the environment. It's one thing to stop the deforestation, but how do we plant trees? We might not restore the whole forest or get all the plastic out of the ocean, but if we care enough about the forest and the ocean for future generations, how do we at least try to make it more inhabitable, less toxic for those who come after us and also make their habitat here? This
2: is Why I Stay, a show about faithfulness in the face of judgment, hurt, and betrayal. Dan Stringer is a pastor and campus minister with InterVarsity in Honolulu, Hawaii. He recently released a book titled Struggling with Evangelicalism, Why I Want to Leave and What it Takes to Stay. Dan is a missionary kid who's lived all over the world. He was an evangelical but didn't know that until he went to Bible college in Chicago. As a biracial man who grew up outside of America, he has a unique perspective on some of the issues within evangelicalism. His own experiences of racism and arrogance within the church have led to a complicated relationship with the evangelical church. I wanted to know what keeps him coming, even though he has experienced so much confusion about it. You just released a book called Struggling with Evangelicalism, Why I Want to Leave and What It Takes to Stay. Before we go any further, I just think it'd be beneficial uh, if you could define evangelicalism for us. What do they do? Who are they? Those kinds of questions.
1: Um, The book has a whole chapter on what is evangelicalism, even just for the purposes of the book. I try to approach it mostly as a space where a particular type of Christianity is practiced and where particular folks inhabit that as their spiritual home. There are theological categories involved. There are cultural, political factors involved. In the book, I basically say that for my purposes, I'm talking about what it means to inhabit a particular space that might have some of the features that are typically used to describe either the theological category of evangelicalism, which sometimes folks talk about Bevington's quadrilateral, if you're familiar with that. That's more in the theological category way of defining it. But there are other ways of defining it as well. And in the book, I refer to Kristen Dumais of Calvin University. She's a historian who describes evangelicalism as four things, at least four entities that are overlapping. One is the theological category. One is a cultural movement. Another one is the white religious brand or identity. And then there's also a global movement non-north american evangelicalism which you know varies a lot by geography. And so at any given time evangelicalism is an appropriate word to describe one of those four things and sometimes they overlap sometimes they don't. But for the purpose of this book I'm talking about it as not so much do you qualify as an individual do you identify with this label this brand you might or might not. The question I'm dealing with is much more about how do you feel about living in this particular locale this this zip code that's not all of Christianity. It's a particular space on the big Christian map that has its own particular features.
2: You grew up a missionary kid traveling all over. You've lived on three different continents. Can you tell us a little bit more what it was like growing up uh, in all those different cultures?
1: Yeah. So I was born here in Hawaii and around the time I was seven, my parents decided to do medical missions. My dad was a dentist And the place that needed dentists with their particular Presbyterian mission was Congo Zaire. Um, Now it's called DRC. At the time, it was Zaire in the late 80s when we went there. And so my second, third, and fourth grades year uh, were in Zaire. And if I backtrack, my first grade year was actually in Quebec, Canada, because we had to learn French for a year. So I did first grade in northern Quebec, where nobody speaks English, so you learn French more quickly super cold up there, but I picked it up and moved to Zaire second, third and fourth, and then moved back to Hawaii. And we got basically restationed because things were tumultuous at that time in Zaire with political unrest. So the other place that needed dentists was a totally different part of the world. So we went from Central Africa to Central Asia And Kathmandu, Nepal was where we landed. And so I was in Nepal from seventh grade onwards till the end of high school. However, the last three years of high school, I was a boarding student in the Philippines in Manila at a uh, missionary kids' school there called Faith Academy. So while the rest of my family was in Nepal, you know, I would be there, you know, summers and Christmas. But during the school year for 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, I was in Manila, Philippines. So that's how you get the, the five countries and three continents.
2: Were you going to local churches and all those places or were you guys finding American churches that was, you know, American in culture, basically?
1: Yeah. In the book, I talk a little bit about some of the different experiences I had. We were at a local church in Zaire for those elementary school periods for me which is very eye-opening, service is really long, is in a local dialect, Chaluba, that I didn't always understand, but still picked up a lot of um, observations. In Nepal, it was much more of an international English-speaking Protestant congregation. Mm-hmm. But you know, in between those times, I would come back to the United States and experience Christianity here. And I think the bigger piece of it was going to college in the U.S. at Wheaton College, which I chose because I knew there'd be other missionary kids there. And I didn't want to be alone. Mm -hmm. And so this book is kind of the process of me integrating the different observations of my childhood with what's happened in the 20 years since I became an adult. You know, what are the things that are the same? What are the things that are different? And just to see how much it varies and how there are many different ways that evangelicalism is experienced, expressed, and um, understood. Did you go to Wheaton to be a pastor? Was that your plan when you started going there? Not at all. Nope. (laughs) Um, My road to pastoral ministry was kind of a meandering journey that led me through the field of social work for a number of years, about seven years. And it was in the process of doing my master's in social work that I kind of uncovered a, a call to go to seminary and focus more on local church. And then once we got to seminary, the field broadened more. And partly because my wife is a local church pastor, I learned, I learned more about campus ministry and um, opportunities to be bivocational. So it's been a wild ride for, for 20 years.
2: When was it that you discovered you were actually an evangelical?
1: In the book, I talk about that somewhere around college time, when I took a class at Wheaton that was required for all the freshmen. The exercise that I'll never forget is when the professor was trying to get to know all 30 of us in the class, and he had us write down on index cards some basic information about us, and he took each of our pictures so that he could learn to match the names and faces. Mm -hmm. But the question I could not figure out how to answer was, What's your denominational background or faith tradition? And I was like, How do I answer that? I don't know because. My parents were part of a Presbyterian medical mission, but we didn't really go to Presbyterian churches in the U.S. I didn't really know what that was like. Mm -hmm. I kind of bounced around between different denominations. So do I just pick the most recent one that I've been in for a year? Uh, Maybe I'll just put non-denominational. That sounds kind of safe and less risky. So I just put non-denominational because it sounded like it wouldn't get me uh, in too much trouble or embarrassed. But that whole process started me thinking about this thing called evangelicalism, which at Wheaton they talk about a lot, and I started to realize, oh wow, the more I learn about this faith stream, faith tradition, the more I realize, wow, I've been I've been part of this pretty much my whole life. It just was never called that; it was just called Christianity, right? And so that started the wheels turning of figuring out, huh, where where is Christianity? Where is evangelicalism? And where do I fit in that? And, and somewhere around there, I realized, okay, I think I think I must be an evangelical.
2: At what point did you start to think that maybe you didn't want to identify as an evangelical anymore? Like what were some of the circumstances that led to that? What were the experiences you had that made you, uh, as the subtitle says, want to leave?
1: I mean, there's been so many uh, at different points. Generally speaking, I have been more concerned about what I've seen happen to my friends and others than what's happened to me. I think I've never been tremendously mistreated And so if I say, for example, that I've decided to stay for whatever reason, I'm not saying that, you know, someone who's been through more trauma or mistreatment that you're obligated to stay, because I don't know, I don't know your story. And it could be the case that, that it's better for you to find a different faith stream. But for me, I think the dissonance began in 2004. Right after I graduated, I was doing an internship at a radio station in Chicago that was covering the presidential primaries and my job as an intern was to chop up the sound bites that would come in as different feeds from the various campaign speeches and you know at that time George Bush was running for re-election George W and it was kind of wide open who the challenger was going to be from the Democratic side and so you know when I was starting that internship there were like 10 12 15 different names and I would try to find these sound bites that the reporters could use in their hourly recaps that kind of captured a sound bite from the campaign trail and then I started to kind of piece together as various candidates would talk about faith or religion in different ways I started to see well sometimes these things that seem to be Christian are not really lining up with where Christians are saying the truth is or where to vote and I noticed a lot of hypocrisy in the way that Christians on one hand would say that they're pro life and on the other hand they would be in favor of war and capital punishment and any number of things that did not affirm life. And so it led me to question a lot more during that whole 2004 election season, because on one hand, I was in the newsroom seeing these things unfold, and it was always about who's ahead, who's behind, whose speech helped them or made it worse. It was all about the horse race. Mm -hmm. And then from my own Christian worldview, I was thinking, yeah, okay, well, I can see what's effective or who's winning, but what's actually best? What's a good place to land on some of these complicated questions about torture, Iraq, healthcare, and immigration, the economy, taxes, Mm -hmm. the rich and poor gap? So that really started the process of me seeing, wow, I think I'm pretty different than a lot of the folks that I went to school with or that people might think I agree with based on my church background or my beliefs about God. So that just led to a process that eventually, you know, four years later, 2008, I was in another election year. Space where there was dissonance with some of my classmates in grad school because I was starting the master of social work program here at University of Hawaii, mm-hmm. and um, I found that with my other social work classmates, we would agree a lot on what some of the issues were in society that needed to be addressed and how there was a lot at stake in that election. And um, I remember one conversation where we were walking back to the parking lot after a night class, and one of my classmates said yeah, I think things are heading in the right direction, but if it just wasn't for those expletive evangelicals, maybe we can make some some good strides. And I was like, yeah, I, I didn't know what to say. I was like, do I agree with that? Or do I say, well, actually, I think I'm one of those expletive evangelicals who agrees with you, but doesn't necessarily want to just abandon my faith either. Yeah. And so that's when I started to sense more like, okay, What am I going to do with this word? And that's when it became more about the label and uh, whether it was helpful or not.
2: Did you ever struggle with Christianity itself or was your struggle more with evangelicalism? You know, because you grew up around these other cultures and other streams that was much wider than American evangelicalism.
1: On one hand, it's really easy to say, oh yeah, just try another type of Christianity. Mm -hmm. But that underestimates the importance of relationships, community, Mm -hmm. geography. Where are these congregations? I guess nowadays a lot of them are much more accessible because of the internet. But my connection to faith in God as a father, son, spirit, trinity would probably be much stronger than my desire to be loyal to the evangelical church. I think somewhere along the way, it was helpful for me to understand that you could be a Christian and not be an evangelical. And that gave me options that helped me to have a sense that, well, there are some choices here and there's a lot of different factors and it's really complicated. don't know how to decide at any given time, but I'm pretty sure I want to keep the Trinity and Jesus and the church part. We'll see where that goes, but, um, It was certainly a challenge, but at the same time, I think to answer your question, the challenge is much more with evangelicalism than Christianity, Mm -hmm. even though because evangelicalism can be such a totalizing space where your faith in God is pretty much equated with a particular type of discipleship and faith, it can be easy to be like, I'm sick of this whole thing. Maybe I'll just throw out the faith altogether. And so I I can definitely empathize with that feeling for people.
2: What kind of tools have you discovered or habits have you developed that have helped you to stay within evangelicalism and even beyond that to help encourage other people to do it as well?
1: Yeah, I think the book structure is the result of my processing and wrestling over that period of years. What I landed on after a period of just trying to get it out of my system, because I didn't really want to write this book and it wasn't like I really see myself as like trying to establish that type of career or anything like that it really just kind of kept recurring as a theme in my own journey. what do I do with the evangelicalism? What's everyone else doing with the evangelicalism? Mm-hmm. We can talk about God, we can talk about Christianity, we can talk about politics. but at the end of the day what I care about is this evangelicalism thing or evangelicalism. What is going on with that and how do I make sense of that? and that was the, the continual gray area of mixed feelings and confusion. And so after writing about it in blog posts and shorter pieces, eventually it became a book where I try to pull together four postures that if we hold them at once or try to keep them all in mind, then we'll be in a better place to make a informed as well as faithful, mature, hopefully healthy decision about where to go. And those four postures are awareness, Appreciation, repentance, and renewal. And so, for folks who are more on the side of defending evangelicalism, they will remind us all the things we need to appreciate, but they will minimize what we need to repent of and just how complicit we are in idolatry and injustice. And then, you know, there's folks for whom we can see what's wrong, we can see all that's just embarrassing and needs to really change or stop or just, you know, have some space from. And I put that section in in the book on appreciation because that helped me as well to see, well, why am I even still here? If it was such a clear decision, why do I keep coming back? So the book is really for folks who have some ambivalence or mixed feelings. If it's more clear cut, if you've already kind of landed like, I'm done, there is not much redemptive, then that's totally understandable. And the book might not be a good fit for you if it's really just been nothing but pain. But if there is that ambivalence and and good, then then that's who it's for. And so we start off with awareness because it helps us to see what we've already been talking about. How it's just a particular faith stream, a particular zip code on this big map, and then appreciation because we want to know, you know, how did we even get here, and what are the things that um, we might take for granted, whether it's the way that evangelicals highlight a direct connection to God that's not restricted to Sunday mornings or a priest. They're really good things that come with that sense of authenticity where your faith really matters to everyday decisions and God is accessible. You can you know, talk to God at any time. You can read about God and learn about God from anyone or book or place if it's helpful. And then finally, after repentance comes renewal, which the caveat is, if you want to stick around, and I don't say in the book, like you have to, or just because you've received some good benefits or privileges from evangelicalism, you're not obligated to stay. I have some really good friends who are thriving in other Christian streams now because they just had a sense that that would be where they would be more spiritually healthy. But for those of us who end up saying okay i'm invested enough that i kind of want to stick around and at least own this baggage and say it's embarrassing it's frustrating the emotions are real but how do we be part of renewal how do we be part of leaving it better than we found it you know to use a metaphor from the environment it's one thing to stop the deforestation but how do we plant trees how do we make it better we might not restore the whole forest or get all the plastic out of the ocean but if we care enough about the forests and the ocean for future generations, how do we at least try to make it more inhabitable, less toxic for those who come after us and also make their habitat here?
2: Leads to a question that I ask every guest What's the difference between influencing and enabling? So, you know, your local church, if there are things they're doing that you don't think are just or good, you know, if they're cutting down the trees around them, how do you know if you're helping them to keep cutting trees down because of your presence? Or how do you know if you're influencing them to, to stop cutting trees and maybe even start planting them?
1: That is a great question. I need to think about that one more. Um, I think it's such a fine line. And that's what makes it a great question, mm-hmm. is because you can be possibly, I think it's possible to even be doing both at the same time. Where on one hand, you might be silent about something in the church that you need to speak up on. And then in another area, at the same time, in the same church with the same Sunday morning, you might be also helping to keep somebody from giving up or keep somebody from just really losing hope. Mm -hmm. And so it's not so much that we can ever completely remove all complicity. I mean, I know some folks feel that way, like if it's more clear, I, I tend to be much more of the gray area person where I say, yeah, I mean, it's very possible that the place where my tithe money goes, or the things that I recommend it could be that those things are are doing more damage than i realize and if that's the case the key is you know when it's brought to your attention and when you really are aware of it then the change needs to be made but there's so many factors that play into that especially as a pastor right there's just numerous elements of any decision about where your time and money and your relationships go sometimes it's really clear like okay that needs to stop and i just can't give money to that anymore and then there's there's other cases where it's more like, huh, yeah. Our denomination, for example, has done some bad things. You know, we have really excluded folks unnecessarily. We have cut off churches that I didn't think was necessary to cut off. So in a sense, if I stay in the denomination, does that mean like I'm sort of enabling that? It could. Yeah. On the other hand, it could also mean by staying, I have a voice to say I disagree with that and be kind of a, a dissenting perspective as well. So at any given time, I try to approach it less as did I pass the purity test of like making all the good decisions and keeping all my motives towards the right things and more just about recognizing that it's a mixed bag and um, doing your best to navigate that with, with the mindfulness that, that keeps all the postures in, in view. Do you have any answers to that? I mean, I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: n- no, not yet. That's really why I ask it is because it's a true personal struggle for me to understand, you know, the difference between being involved somewhere where I'm I'm using my time and my money and, and my giftings to help enliven the church, but maybe they uh, don't support women's leadership, or maybe they don't believe that racism is a problem in America, or I mean, there's just all kinds of different things that, that I think really do matter and they really make a difference. But, you know, is is the answer for everyone to leave the places they're at until they can find a place where they agree with everything? Because I don't think that's a real possibility either. I think that just leaves you alone. So, yeah, my dream is to have an ecumenical church where it's like we have teachers who disagree on things and there's not a pulpit. There's just we have time together where we discuss how to apply biblical truths to our modern day circumstances but i don't know if that's a dream or a fantasy i don't i don't it <laughs> seems unlikely but who knows right
1: yeah the search for the the good fit it's just an elusive thing i mean yeah. i spent the better part of my 20s and early 30s you know search for the right seminary search for the right denomination search for the right congregation yeah search you know cuz we're looking we're looking for something we can believe in something we can hitch ourselves to. In a certain sense, the search is in vain because you won't find it if you're looking for something that will check all your boxes. Right. And then on the other side of the coin, it's not in vain because you're learning more about what matters to you and more about your own discipleship journey as you seek to become a better follower of Christ mm. and a more faithful witness to God's kingdom. So that's what makes the journey so challenging, right? Because at any given time, it can be a better step to like, okay, no, this is not a good fit. We need to pursue a better fit. And then there are other things where we're kind of inconsistent because we don't really let that be a deal breaker with other issues right. um, mm-hmm. where we might disagree on politics or the end times. or And so there's something to be said for having common ground and diversity of theological perspectives as well. Yeah. So our denomination the Covenant Church we have a long history of having a non-creedal perspective that still has affirmations. So we have mm-hmm. these six affirmations that are kind of like commitments mm-hmm. but we don't have, you know, you must agree with this document or these points of faith. So there's some sometimes a happy medium in there of like letting people have their freedom to disagree and recognize that scripture is more authoritative than our interpretations of scripture. And then at the same time, you do have to have enough agreement to to collaborate and to uh, (laughs) create a sense of belonging.
2: Of Kristen Dumais' four criteria for evangelicalism, and one of them was white Christianity.
1: A white uh, religious brand, I think she calls it.
2: Yeah. So, what's been your experience with that?
1: Because my background is so full of various geographical places, to me, race is something that varies a lot by geography when it comes to how people express that idolatry, if you will. I was in the Bible Belt for a conference where it was a parachurch conference, and out of the 100 people in the room, there was one Asian person and then me. I'm biracial, Asian, and white. But in that group, I was clearly a person of color. And so when it came time for the group picture, it was like, okay, Dan, can you stand like closer to the middle so it looks like we had more diversity? And they're kind of like joking about it, acknowledging that there isn't really any diversity (laughs) in the room. It was like almost all white men. And in that moment, I felt like, oh man, I, I guess I'm like a token here. I'm sort of enabling something, but I'm also seen as different, which okay, but I don't know if I can be part of spaces like this frequently. So I've been fortunate that that's not my default surroundings because of where I live in Hawaii and you know, I've, I'm very thankful to have been in places where there are more Asian Americans and biracial folks, so I don't feel out of place. That, that's probably why I like living in Hawaii so much. You know, it's not such a big deal when mm-hmm. in other places they might be like, "What? What are you? Where are you from?" And I'm like, yeah. oh, "Okay, here we go. Here we go again." I get it. It's racially ambiguous. You're curious. I'm curious as well about people sometimes, <laughs> but um, I think once you see the stats on how things vary so much politically by race, you just have to see how how big of a factor that is. And so on one hand, it's scary to be in certain spaces where things have been hijacked to the point where you're not a true Christian if you don't conform to the norms of white culture and white theology. And I totally understand people needing to Get out of those spaces for their own well-being and sanity. I can relate to that. Mm-hmm. And the other side of the coin is that whiteness doesn't get to define who Christianity is or even who evangelicalism is. Depending on the studies, somewhere around a third of evangelicals in the US are people of color, especially those who are under 30. So on one hand, they're not being represented in you know the brand and the spokespeople for evangelicalism. And then on the other hand, you also have to look at where people are placed in the hierarchy too, because it's one thing to have like a diverse school or a diverse church, but who are the leaders and where's the diversity there among who is in charge and who has the power? Mm -hmm. Is there gender diversity there? Is there socioeconomic and geographic diversity there? So I have a real complicated (laughs) relationship with whiteness because I'm also part of it myself on my dad's side. And so, in any given space, my positionality is uh, up for grabs sometimes. Here, with InterVarsity, I'm kind of one of the whitest people on the staff team. So, it's funny how, you know, when when there needs to be, like, ethnic-specific groups or times where we can process or talk about issues of complicity and repentance, then I can kind of, like, pray those lament prayers with the white students. So it really just depends. I guess I wear I wear different hats. That's part of being a mixed race person. Yeah. And with the recognition that it would it would be harder if I didn't if I didn't have the white half of me, whichever half that is, top or bottom or right or left, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because that that gives me proximity to a lot of privilege and opportunities. And so for every time I felt out of place in a mostly Asian setting where I wished my last name wasn't Stringer, so I could blend in more. Mm-hmm. There have been other times where if I'm on the continent somewhere, I'm glad my last name sounds white so that I, I get more a connection right off the bat without having to be so different right away.
2: Last question. What do you love about Christianity?
1: What I love about Christianity is that it keeps me on my toes and it keeps me fascinated and it keeps me connected in a way that if I just stepped away, I would lose probably the number one source of vibrancy, curiosity, and conversation in my life. I think that's partly why I went to Christian college, why I went to a seminary and became a pastor, is because I just love talking about this stuff. I love praying for people, hearing how they're doing. Uh, we can talk about what's going on in the news and, you know, sports, weather, grandkids, whatever. But at the end of the day, like I love talking about conversations regarding faith and meaning and God. And so for me, Christianity is a is a place where I feel at home to do that. There's so much to continually learn. Like you said, we have this really long history that we're only scratching the surface of because so much of it has been communicated through kind of the European path, which I don't take for granted because there's so many great things to learn theologically from folks with that background. On the other hand, it's like, who are we missing from the equation? And the more you ask those questions, the more you see there's so much to learn and grow with. And um, even those nine years of my childhood that were overseas, I just caught a glimpse of the wealth and depth of of richness that's there of, of what can be seen and learned from and um, what, what god is doing so whether that's called christianity or whether that's called just discipleship there's just so much there and then even once you get outside of evangelicalism you know you have these other eastern orthodox streams catholic many different protestants out there and i think there's something to learn from all of them so, so that's always going to be there so the struggle is never you know where can i get enough inspiring content where can I find enough wisdom? Like, there's, there's just so much out there. It's just yep. the question for me has always been, where, where do I land? Where's home? Who are my people? Yep. And do I identify enough to plant myself there and, and put down roots there?
2: Where can people find you, find your books, find your social media?
1: Yeah, so the best place is probably my website, danstringer.net. And that has a whole bunch of links there to the different places you can find the book, but it's certainly available wherever books are sold. So whether you get your books from Bookshop or University Press directly, Barnes & Noble, Amazon Christian Book, there's links on my website, danstringer.net, as well as my social media. Rev Dan Stringer is my Twitter, so I tend to do more there than my other social media, but they're all Rev Dan Stringer.
2: Why I Stay is a production of the Pathios Podcast Network, where we explore faith and gain understanding. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other ones, please leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple and go find someone you haven't talked to in five years, call them up and say, man, you got to listen to this because you loved it so much. My conversation with Dan was one of the most familiar I've had in a while. Our backgrounds are very different, but our love for and struggles with evangelicalism in America are very similar. I really enjoyed our talk. If you're struggling with your faith, evangelical or not, I think Dan's book provides a great way to figure out some of your next steps. You can buy Struggling with Evangelicalism, Why I Want to Leave and What It Takes to Stay, anywhere the books are sold. Why I Stay was edited and mastered by Clinton Battles. It's produced and hosted by me, John Osborne.
0: If you're enjoying this series, consider checking out one of our other podcast offerings from Patheos, like From Sin to Saint.
1: Some people might point to his anti-Nazi activism as the key thing for them. I mean, I'm, I'm compelled by
0: that, but I think it's his theological and ethical underpinnings of his choices that really resonate for me.
1: This willingness to die for his beliefs has inspired both religious commitment and religious violence.
2: There were a couple of high-profile murders of abortion doctors and bombings of of abortion providers in which the people who were convicted of the crimes identified Bonhoeffer as their inspiration.
0: In this four-part historical exploration of the life and legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, join creator and host Josh Lash as he sits down with experts and walks us through the intriguing and complex life of this revered German theologian and martyr or consider checking out the Bible Brief Podcast. So let's talk about
2: for a second, just what is it, what's in there? How do we just untangle all of this and figure
0: out, is it something we should pay attention to? I think that this is the most, perhaps the most misunderstood book of scripture. Would you agree? Pretty much hands down. In this special three-part series, Host Lori Denning and guest Dr. McLean Heward sort through some of the popular misunderstandings about the New Testament book of Revelation and examine what this ancient apocalypse might mean for us today. You can find From Sin to Saint, the Bible Brief podcast, and our entire podcast catalog on patheos.com or on your favorite podcast app. Check the show notes for helpful links and more information.